This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rachel LeVay, Acquisitions Editor for University of Colorado and Utah State University Presses. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to have you here, and I'm really excited to meet my first book editor, so this is very exciting (laughs) for me. Um, To start us off, will you please tell us about yourself? Yeah. Uh, So my name is Rachel LeVay, and I'm an acquisitions editor with Utah State University Press, which is an imprint of the University Press of Colorado. And I live in Southeast Idaho, so I work for my company remotely. And I live here in Pocatello, Idaho with my husband, who's an English professor, and our two daughters. We have a six-year-old and a soon-to-be one-year-old and a goofy, rangy mutt of a dog. And we've been here for about six years. Um, I have been in scholarly publishing for quite some time. I'm This is my 16th year working in scholarly publishing. And I started my career at the University of Washington Press and have been with the University Press of Colorado for about three and a half years working in acquisitions. And it's truly... Uh, a dream come true of a job for me. I've been doing it for quite some time and there's not been a single day that I've woken up and not been grateful to be doing this work. It's the kind of work that um, I I dreamed about when I was a kid and I'm really thrilled to be able to do, uh, to work with scholarship every day is a a real joy. Um, I love to bake and when I'm not in quarantine times, I love to um, run. That's been uh, an activity I've loved for years, but I haven't done as much of it lately with a baby in quarantine. So um, yeah, that's that's me. So if a book editor marries a literature professor, <laughs> did your house have just an amazing personal library in it? Like I just have this picture in my mind of a room of your house, just so many bookshelves. It's, it's a little bit out of control. Uh, we have a lot of books, and especially with quarantine, my husband has brought a lot of his books home to have access to them from his office, so that's increased our library as well. And our six-year-old is uh, an out-of-control, voracious reader, and so her books uh, have almost dwarfed ours. Like We recently had to redo her bedroom to accommodate the stacks and stacks of books that were just piled on her bed, had fallen behind her bed, all over her floor. It's like an obstacle course in there. So yeah, we, we are definitely book people through and through, and we have the, the receipts for it. That just sounds amazing. Now I want to come visit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it sounds like if this was your dream job, was this what you were always headed towards? 
Yeah. I, so I graduated from the University of Washington. That's where I did my BA. And I was kind of your standard English undergraduate student. I did an emphasis in creative writing. And writing was my, my real passion. And I had the privilege of kind of prioritizing writing and reading as something I loved and thinking about the job end of it after the fact. So when I was an undergrad, I really delved into creative writing and that was a big part of my identity. And so when I graduated from my undergrad, I did an MFA at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. And um, I wanted to get as far away from the Pacific Northwest as possible and explore another part of the country. So I went to North Carolina, which was amazing. And one of the really great things about the MFA program at UNCG was that they also had an MA in editing and publishing. And I didn't enroll in the MA, but the MFA students were all encouraged to take those courses alongside our creative writing workshops. So I was able to take a number of those classes, and they really covered the gamut in terms of what to expect from working in publishing. We went over a lot of copy editing. Uh, we did some design programs, got familiar with what it meant to typeset and design uh, scholarly work as well as trade work. Like We dabbled in both poetry as well as kind of monograph type projects. And uh, that's the point at which it really seemed to me, oh my goodness, I could I could work with books forever. Like that's that's a future that's open to me. And when I finished my MFA, I went back to Seattle and um, knew that I wanted to work in publishing, but wasn't quite sure exactly how to make that happen um, with the experience that I had. And I ended up working at an independent bookstore, Ravenna Third Place Books, which is a lovely little neighborhood bookshop, kind of your classic quintessential indie with you know the rough cedar floors and um, little courtyard garden. And I worked as the events coordinator. And that was a place where my understanding of publishing really shifted. I, I started working with big trade houses to schedule events. I started handling the cooperative advertising program, which is where publishers throw some money at independent bookstores to help support advertising of events that have been scheduled. And I started attending more of the industry um, events like the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association and started learning about Book Expo America, which, rest in peace, just um, closed up shop this past week. Um, oh dear. And I, I kind of developed a more nuanced understanding because I had kind of gone from thinking, if I want to work in publishing, that means I'll be an acquiring editor or I will copy edit manuscripts to kind of seeing this other side of publishing, the, the part of publishing where readers and books are connected. And I found a lot of joy in that. So um, after I'd been there about a year, the University of Washington Press advertised a position for a publicist. And it was just a really great fit for the work that I'd been doing at the bookstore and I was incredibly fortunate to, to get that job. Um, and, and sometimes in publishing, there's a real press to hire people who have the exact qualifications that a job requires. And at that point in time, the University of Washington Press was really willing to look at translating the skills that I had learned at the bookstore to what it meant to work as a publicist. So I started 
um, working in publishing there as a publicist and went all the way through the marketing department. I was a sales and publicity manager for a while. And by the time I left after about 13 years at the press, I was the marketing and sales director and had been acquiring some books here and there in the trade, the regional trade program, which is more the general reader type books. Um, and, you know, after that amount of time, I was starting to think about the, the, the young person I was who'd really envisioned this future working as an editor and started thinking that would be a really neat next step for me to take. So I was fortunate to, to transition to the University Press of Colorado, where I can now work as an acquisitions editor and have been kind of living that, that, that dream that I had of being an editor and finding the scholarship and um, helping to craft and shape disciplines. So I've, I've been fortunate to work in really a, a broad swath of publishing at this point. And so now you're an acquisitions editor. Can you walk us through what a day of or a week <laughs> as an acquisitions editor is that so we have an idea yeah. of the different hats you wear because we're, you know, most listeners are, are probably going to be hoping to submit a manuscript at some point, and some listeners will be hoping to have a job like yours. So it's helpful for all listeners to understand what do you really do? Yeah. Um, it's so much correspondence. It's not even funny. Um, I, I, I sometimes joke with friends who are also acquisitions editors that our jobs could probably be done in half time if it weren't for keeping up with peer review deadlines, because uh, that's the biggest part of, of what we do um, in many cases. Um, I, I tend to see my workload kind of come in waves. I am often spending my time preparing manuscripts for peer review, uh, reading through them, uh, establishing whether or not they're ready for peer review because I want the projects to go forward to that next step when they're most ready and prepared for it. Um, finding peer reviewers is a huge portion of my work that involves a lot of research and a lot of outreach and particularly at times like this where um, there's a lot of unpredictability to our schedules and workloads are really shifting. It can take a lot of time to find peer reviewers. Uh, it's not uncommon to have to ask seven, eight, nine, ten people before finding the two reviewers that a project needs. And then a, a lot of my time is also processing those peer reviews, getting those back, um, following up with peer reviewers to ask questions where maybe there are some gaps in the review uh, and then communicating those to the authors and establishing plans for revision and moving forward um, when that's applicable. I also spend a lot of my time preparing manuscripts for transmittal. And that's something that varies at different presses. Um, the University Press of Colorado is a relatively small press. Uh, when I started, we had seven full-time staff. And uh, because of uh, a couple of retirements uh, that have happened over the past year, we're down to five full-time staff and we're holding at that number uh, because budgetarily it makes sense at a moment like this. So I don't have an assistant editor who helps me with any of that work. So when a manuscript comes in for transmittal, I'm the one who's going through it with a fine tooth comb and making sure that the images are high enough resolution, that um, the manuscript guidelines have been followed, that the callouts are correct in the manuscript, kind of all of those little detail-oriented parts of the work. 
are things that I do and that take up a good portion of the time. I Another big place where I spend a lot of time and energy is thinking about some big picture goals for the press and communicating with our faculty editorial committee, which is what we call our press committee, and with the board of trustees that oversees the press and working with them to ensure that we're, we're doing the, the work that they've laid out for us as an organization and that the projects are proceeding uh, the way they ought to. So it's, it's a tremendous amount of correspondence and kind of, for lack of a better term, middleman work. Like we, we serve as a conduit between authors and peer reviewers and, and then authors and our colleagues in editorial design and production, and then ultimately from authors to audiences again as publication happens. So you mentioned a really important term there, which is peer review. And I wonder if you could describe for listeners what a peer review is, and then can we just jump into why do we need them? What, what purpose do they serve? And, um, you know, those kinds of things about um, the function of a real peer review, because um, I'm on Twitter now. I'm late to the Twitter game. Thank you. (laughs) And I've noticed that uh, peer reviews are something that people tweet about, and there's um, emotion about the tweets. So can you you be our ambassador, please, to the peer review process (laughs) and help us understand why we need to go through those? Yes. So the peer review process varies greatly from press to press, but there are some things that I think are pretty consistent. Um, At our Press, we peer review manuscripts. Um, some publishers that I know peer review proposals and or sample chapters. And I think that's much more common at commercial presses, um, which are you know publishers like Rutledge, um, Palgrave. Those are commercial publishers. And my sense is that they frequently publish or peer review smaller portions of content, like a proposal or sample chapters. And for us as a university press, we peer review full manuscripts. And I think that's much more common for university presses. We look for two peer reviewers on every project. And for me, I I feel pretty passionately about peer review. I, I think that there's sometimes a perception that peer review can function as a gatekeeping Uh, mechanism. And that's something that I think is important for those of us working in publishing to to push back against and to also consider why that perception exists. Um, For me, I feel really passionately that peer review should do several things. One, the most important is that it should make projects stronger. And by that, I mean it should honor the project as conceived of by the author. There can be a tendency for peer reviewers to view projects through the lens of their own research or to think about, wow, I I wish I had written this book, but like this. And what our role is as editors is to help the authors navigate that space and the peer reviewers to navigate that space and accept the project for what it is and to keep the author's intentions for the project at the center, but seek to make the project stronger. Um, I, I have seen authors kind of view peer review as a checklist of things that must be solved. You know, peer reviewer wants A, B, C, D, E, and F from me, so I have to make each of those things happen. But the reality is that peer review offers 
opportunities for ways to think about the project and to look for ways that it can strengthen it, but not to answer every question that a peer reviewer might have about what that project does. And that's a really difficult thing for authors, especially first-time authors working on book-length manuscripts to to navigate. I mean, there's a lot of uh, liminal space there, and an editor's job is to kind of help push through that space and take what peer review offers that strengthens a project, but also help help authors be willing to push back in places and say, you know, that's that's not where my project needs to go or that's not what I want my project to do. And to understand that both of those things are okay. Um, I mean, I, I find that peer review is something that is really stressful for authors, even established authors. You know, I'm working with an author right now who has published one book with our press and the book is done really well. And he has another book in peer review right now and is just a ball of nerves about it. Uh, you know, he's written to to kind of ask what happens next, even though he he knows what happens next. But it's it's a lot of questions that that come up about how to get through this process. And um, an editor should be transparent about that process as as an author goes through it and try to answer as many questions as possible. Um, one thing that's really important to note about peer review and for authors to ask as they go into that process is um, what what will that process generally look like? For us, we do a single anonymous process, which means that the author's name is on the manuscript. So the peer reviewers will see the author's name, but the author won't see the peer reviewer's name. And each press handles that differently. And that's a question that authors can certainly ask of their editor to get a little more information about what to expect. Um, It was much more common even a few years ago for that process to be double anonymous, where the reviewer didn't know the author's name and the author didn't know the reviewer's name either. But increasingly, we, we found that disciplines can be small enough that it's pretty evident who an author is throughout. And so eliminating that piece of the puzzle um, just kind of makes it a more open and transparent process in ways that can be beneficial. Um, that, that was going to be one of my questions about with about how anonymous it is. Going back to me recently being on Twitter and researching um, how people were talking about the peer review process. Someone just posted on Twitter that he got his peer review back and they were double anonymous in how they do the peer review. So the peer review request was that he become more familiar with a specific author and realize his um, arguments after learning about how that author makes arguments, that argument that author is actually him. Yes. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that happened fairly often. Um, and and I've, I remember reading recently a Chronicle of Higher Ed article about a, a woman who was admonished that she was self-plagiarizing, but the reviewer didn't realize it was self-plagiarism. Like they, they were saying this woman should be familiar with you know this this author's work, but they were actually talking about the author and um, were really hitting hard on the manuscript for not embracing what was ultimately her own scholarship more in the work. So I, I think that a single anonymous process can really help with that. Um, a, another reason why we we gravitated toward a single anonymous structure is that 
we we do a number of edited collections, and those are very hard to anonymize. Um, like it's just very very difficult, and and the number of contributors can make it almost impossible sometimes. And um, I I also think that there's ethically a, a number of questions happening in higher ed more generally about whether or not peer review should be fully open. Um, There's a scholar that many listeners will probably be familiar with, Cheryl Ball, and they have been arguing quite, quite um, emphatically and and convincingly for the benefits of open peer review, where we should just really have identities open and, and do the peer review process online, kind of through through wikis, uh, as as an example. And I think there's um, questions that we should consider about those processes because um, being aware of one another's identities can be really fruitful. That's all really helpful to know. One of the other things I was reading were arguments back and forth about if the peer reviewers should be paid. Do you? want to weigh in on your thoughts? Oh, yeah. And definitely. My my sense is that peer reviewers absolutely should be paid. And that's something that most university presses do, certainly the ones that I've worked with and am familiar with. Um, we can't pay a ton, but we, we definitely do pay peer reviewers and offer the option for books as well if, if peer reviewers would prefer that. But my sense of it is that we're, we're really asking for people's labor and their expertise, and that is, is worth a great deal. Um, and I, I feel very strongly that we should be compensating people for that work. Um, university presses in particular are nonprofits, so oftentimes our margins, especially on scholarship, are, are really razor thin. But that doesn't mean that we should pretend that the labor in getting the projects published doesn't exist because it does. And without peer reviewers, the whole endeavor kind of grinds to a halt. You spoke about the amount of research editors do in looking into who could be a peer reviewer and reaching out to them. Is there a mechanism for people who have expertise and know that a press publishes in that area or will be publishing in that area to send in their CV and say, hey, I'm if you know, the stars align and you need a peer reviewer and I'm available at that time, I would be willing to be on your roster. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I tend to have more conversations along those lines at conferences back when that was a thing. Um, but I certainly would, would welcome folks reaching out and kind of sharing their expertise. Um, I mean, I, I think that one of the things I feel really strongly about it at this point in my career is really thinking about who peer reviews our manuscripts. I think that that's something we really need to consider. The kind of traditional rules around peer review is kind of assumed that scholars would be at an advanced place in their career where perhaps they would have tenure or they would have published a book-length work themselves. But I, I am really trying to rethink that and have been having some really great conversations with other editors in the field about what do we really mean by expertise? Because uh, I'm really aware, you know, there was just an article that came out in the New York Times this morning about how white publishing is. And they, they were really looking uh, primarily at trade publishing from the big five publishers, by which we mean 
kind of books for general readers that are coming out from HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, Penguin. But we know across the board that publishing is overwhelmingly white. Um, and scholarly publishing is certainly even whiter than higher education broadly. So as as we kind of continue to have these conversations about how to shift those numbers to something that's equitable and more representative of the, the demographics across higher education and our populations more generally, peer review to me feels like a really pivotal place where we can make some big changes. Um, and so I'm really looking at bringing in younger scholars uh, because I, I tend to find that younger scholars are really pushing disciplines and directions that I want to follow and where the conversations are happening that I want to be part of. And I, I think that that's going to require us to to really rethink what our requirements are and and bring in scholars who are still early in their tenure track or who are in non-tenure track or at two-year colleges, and maybe even in some cases, graduate students, and, and have them be part of that conversation about what the discipline is doing, because that the expertise is certainly there. And I don't think that it's something that's kind of magically acquired by virtue of achieving tenure or publishing one's first monograph. Um, I think it's a way that can really help us um, break down the, the kind of replication of the same white authors being cited over and over again and creating a homogeneity in, in the books that are out in our disciplinary areas. Do you also find a gender disparity? Um, in, in certain disciplines, I see more of it. So my, my primary discipline that I work in is rhetoric and composition. And I'm really fortunate that that's my primary field because while like every field, it certainly has its fair share of issues around race and gender, ability, identity, sexual orientation, class, et cetera, there's also a large segment of the discipline that's really actively working on in and for issues of social justice and representation. Um, I, I tend to see a lot of manuscripts from women. I see much less of a gender disparity in rhetoric and composition than I do in some of the other list areas I work in, like folklore or history. Um, but I, I, I think that the biggest place where we still see disparities is around race. Uh, we certainly see more white scholars than um, Black or Indigenous people of color. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was about dealing with rejection. Scholars who are facing rejection, what are the tools uh, you would um, arm them with to go forward for success? So I, I think that um, re rejection is, is a really difficult thing, and it, it varies somewhat disciplinarily. Um, I, I can say that in rhetoric and composition, one of my favorite things about the discipline is that it, it's kind of inherently built into the discipline that revision is is possible and, and we can revise and we can kind of move scholarship forward through that process. So in that discipline, um, rejection is, is relatively rare, just kind of outright rejection. I tend to see a lot more revise and resubmit. Um, in other disciplines like folklore or history, um, rejection is, is a little bit more common. And one of the things that I, I usually try to talk with scholars about is that when, when I see manuscripts get rejected, 
it typically has more to do with fit than the quality of the scholarship. It might just be that the scholarship is not quite ready, but much more likely is that it's not the right fit for the list areas or or the publishing subdisciplinary areas that we tend to work in. So um, one of the great things is that peer review, if it's doing what it should, it should be generative and constructive. And I like for scholars to be able to take that peer review and think about a path forward for their scholarship. And in any instance, whether I've accepted a manuscript or am ultimately rejecting it, I'm, I want to talk with authors about what that peer review is suggesting, um, and I'm happy to give feedback to, to help think about where the manuscript can go to move forward. Because I think in most cases, it does go forward. I, I, the manuscripts that I've tended to reject, I oftentimes see at another publisher down the road, maybe a year or two later. Um, so I, I think that that is important to remember that just because a project is not a good fit for a certain press, that does not mean it's unpublishable and that we should take the peer reviews and kind of work through that. And sometimes projects don't make it to peer review, obviously. <laughs> and, and in those cases, I really like to work with scholars and help them think about how to shift their arguments if, if it's not quite working in the way that I, I think it should, or to think about other publishers where it might be a good fit. Because sometimes I get in manuscripts that is in rhetoric and composition, but it's not in the subdisciplinary areas where I'm really working or expanding the list. But it's a kind of book that definitely my colleagues at Pittsburgh or Ohio State would would be much more um, at home publishing. So it, it's important to remember that even when there is rejection, it's not the end of the scholarship, that there, there are always other opportunities. And do you have advice for listeners about what to do to be as ready as they can prior to submitting? In, in other words, what steps could they take to maximize the chances that they are submitting to the right place, they are submitting materials that are the way the press needs them? Where would people find mentors or guidance for that path? I think it's really important to find scholars in the discipline who are perhaps not scholars you've worked with in your PhD program, but who are outside of your dissertation committee or advisors, for instance, and start to build relationships with, with those folks who can, can read your work and can offer fresh eyes and perspectives on it. Um, I think it's also really helpful to begin a conversation with an editor. I, I know, speaking for myself, I like to work with scholars when their ideas are still early. Um, and I'm really happy to read drafts of things, to look at proposals and offer suggestions on ways to strengthen arguments or continue to make the shift from dissertation to book genre a little more clearly. Each press also has guidelines for what we would like to see in terms of a proposal and a manuscript for peer review. And it's that information is usually widely available. And if there are questions about it, please ask your editor because we're, we're going to be happy to answer those questions and help you get the project ready as best you can. Um, I, I think it's also important to note that um, materials come in in a variety of 
forms of readiness. And we never say no just because something's not quite hitting the guidelines exactly the way we'd like to see them. Um, it's it's much more of a human and humane process than that. So um, be be in contact with an editor and ask questions, and you're certainly likely to get a, a supportive response back. That's helpful because I think a lot of academics and a lot of writers are introverts by nature. And many of us had training from our advisors of grad school to not presume on time and to not, you know, quote unquote, bother people. So how do we find the proper etiquette in reaching out and asking questions? Well, it's it's one of the really nice things about conferences is that it offers an, an opportunity just to pop in and begin that conversation in person. So at, at some future point when we're able to do that again, I really recommend stopping by booths of publishers that you like and introducing yourself and talking about your scholarship briefly. A, a five-minute meeting can really do a lot to, to introduce folks to one another and to begin that conversation. But um, I, I get a lot of outreach just by email, and oftentimes I get quite a bit by Twitter as well. And I'm really happy to have that engagement in whichever um, format it, it, it happens. Um, I, I think that we tend to be excited to talk about scholarship. I know for myself, um, anytime someone wants to talk about their scholarship or, or publishing, I'm really happy to do that. And I, I think that there can sometimes be a sense that editors are intimidating. And I've certainly known some editors who are intimidating, but on the, on the whole, we tend to be pretty ordinary folks who like to talk about scholarship and your work. And um, just reaching out and making that contact will usually be the beginning of a good relationship. You've told us that you're an acquisitions editor and you, you told us about the genre that you acquire in. Would you be able to give us some examples of some recent releases that are books that you worked on? Yeah. Um, and thanks for that question. It's always exciting to share some of the books that uh, I've been working on. Um, I had one that just released earlier this week uh, that I'm incredibly excited about. It's called Black or Right Anti-Racist Campus Rhetorics. And it's by Lou Mirage, who's a scholar at the University of Pittsburgh. And this is a, a really remarkable monograph that um, is 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 taking the idea of anti-racist and racist rhetorics on campuses and and combining it with a, a tone that is is really interesting. Lou is also a creative writer as well as a scholar in rhetoric and composition. So he has a, a voice that's really unique within scholarship and and higher ed. And it's a book that I am absolutely thrilled that we were able to publish. Um, we also have a, another recent book that um, by a scholar named Roseanne Carlo called Transforming Ethos that is, is asking some really interesting questions about what it means to teach writing on different kinds of campuses. Rhetoric and composition is a field um, it is being taught in every college campus in America from two-year colleges up to Ivy Leagues. And the book acknowledges that the ways we, we teach writing are going to be different based on the different students and bodies that are on these campuses. Um, so it's, it's another really wonderful book that I'm excited uh, to, to see on our list. 
and um, one that I think is going to have a lot of disciplinary engagement over the next couple of years. Those both sound amazing. And I was looking over your list this morning before we taped and those both left out at me is, I want those. I want those and hopefully I I can bring them to New Books Network and do an interview with them too, because those just looked um, so important. And those are the kind of books that get me excited to get out of bed and read another book. I do probably not as much reading as you and your husband do, but I do a lot of reading for these podcasts. So um, yeah, those both left out at me. So that kind of leads to my next question, which is, do you have a wish list? And if you do, what's on it? I mean, we've we've got so many wish lists. I think every editor's got a number of them. I mean, I I'm really interested in expanding a couple of my list areas in rhetoric and composition. I'd really like to see more work from two year college scholars, which is is a tough thing to ask because two year campuses are full of scholars teaching incredibly high loads and with very little research time, if any. But I am a graduate of a two-year college. Uh, I went to community college in Washington State before I went to the University of Washington. And it was an incredibly important and foundational part of my education. And I see, as I look around the country, that two-year colleges are going to be ever more important. Uh, It's a really important place for learning. And so I I would love to see more books from two-year scholars on what it's like to teach writing and reading on those campuses. I'm also really interested in expanding our technical communication list areas. TechCom is an area that is really interested in social justice. And there are some really fabulous books in our pipeline that will come out um, over the next year. On, on the social justice turn in technical communication. And we've got some some scholars that uh, are doing incredibly important work around user experience and race and um, online discrimination. Like um, if, if you've been on Twitter, there's um, a, something that's been going around where if there's a photo of a black person and a white person uh, that gets tweeted out, Twitter automatically focuses the picture just on the white person in the picture. And that's these kinds of technical communications issues that have really important real world repercussions. And so I'm, I'm really interested to see more in technical communication, particularly around issues of social justice and race. Um, and then I also work quite a bit in history. And we have a new series in environmental justice, which is one that I'm really eager to see books uh, in that as well. And I'm particularly interested in issues of indigeneity and environmental justice. Those all sound like they will be incredible lists. I'm wondering in the few minutes we have left, if you'd like to tell us what you wish more authors or more would-be authors knew. Yes, definitely. Um, gosh, I, I think in terms of big picture, I would really like for authors to know that university presses um, require scholars to, to function 
Like I, I think that oftentimes there's kind of a sense that publishing is this lofty thing and it, it can be difficult to publish your work and to get in the door. But the reality is we need scholars as much as scholars need university presses and scholarly publishing. So I, I hope that scholars know that it's a partnership, that the, the way that we're going to be working together and that we value what scholars are bringing, uh, not just in terms of their scholarship, but also in their scholarly personas and, and the knowledge that they're bringing. Um, in terms of smaller picture things, like my, my two favorite things to tell people is that um, epigraphs are not your friend. They don't fall under fair use. And if you put a lot of epigraphs in your monograph, you're going to have a lot of permissions headaches and it's better just not to have epigraphs. Um, it's something that we, <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time talking about permissions with authors and epigraphs is the one that just drives everybody um, to, to the most serious points of frustration because it feels like they should be fair use, but they're not, they're decorative and you can save yourself a lot of headache by just not doing epigraphs. So there's my my advice for authors. That is helpful advice um, because the permissions aspect is um, a complexity of academic publishing that is daunting for authors, I think. Yeah. And depending on your discipline, it can be a huge barrier to publication. Like if you're working in art history, that's going to be um, a, a really difficult challenge. Uh, permissions is is a real hardship. Okay, so that's a little bit of a bummer. So let's, <laughs> let's end it on a, on a, a positive note. Um, what is your favorite part of being an editor? What's your favorite moment? Uh, you know, honestly, it's it's um, a bit of a, a cop-out of an answer, but it's, it's every part of it. It's a real honor to be able to work with scholars in developing their ideas and to bring those ideas to readers. I, I feel a, a tremendous privilege has been just the, the opportunity to be part of this exchange of scholarly ideas. It's um, a real blessing, something that I'm incredibly grateful for. So for the authors who've entrusted me with their work, I'm grateful to them for that and look forward to what comes next. What do you hope listeners will take away from listening today? I, I hope that, you know, the, the, the process of peer review is a little bit demystified. I realize that there's so much more I could have talked about about peer review, kind of the, the ethical responsibilities of a peer reviewer approaching a manuscript, my ethical responsibilities as an editor. Um, but I, I hope that it's, it's answered some questions about what to expect from that process and to know that the process is is going to be more collaborative than you might fear it. I think that's a wonderful takeaway. And I think listeners will also take away encouragement to go ahead and reach out to editors and reach out with queries and say, hey, this is what I'm working on. What do you think? And not take it as a solid rejection from the entire publishing industry. If the editor comes back with and says, well, that's not quite the fit for me or for my list. Yes, definitely. And and I think that scholars should also remember that that they have a lot of agency in this. Like find an editor that respects you and your work and build a relationship with that person. 
um, because it it does work both ways. Like you're you're choosing us just as much as we choose you, and and you want to work with someone who's going to respect your scholarship and and your your identity as a scholar as well. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Rachel, and Thank talking you. with us about your work as a book editor. Um, I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. We've been speaking with Rachel LeVay, Acquisitions Editor for University of Colorado and Utah State University Presses. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.